welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Robert Fonseca. All right, well, as I said, this morning's message is God, our refuge. Uh, the word refuge, if you're not familiar with it, it means uh, basically it's, it's something that you flee to for protection. So a place of protection, a place of safety, or uh, somewhere you would escape the elements of this life. Um, I, when I think of refuge, I, I think I picture of a time where I think just recently, it was maybe a few weeks ago, um, I'm going to bra- blame my brother-in-law on this one. We went out hiking, uh, and it was pretty hot outside, and uh, it was in Laguna, and we thought, oh, it would be okay, it won't be too hot, it was in the upper 90s in the Inland Empire, and I forgot what it was supposed to be in uh, Laguna, but uh, we went hiking, not a very uh, bad hike, but again, the, with the heat, it makes it uh, pretty tough, and uh, my wife and my sister-in-law started to, uh, I don't know, suffer heat exhaustion a little bit. And there was no shade, there was no covering along this path, and it was, it was pretty bad. And so there was no place for refuge to hide, to shade themselves uh, from the, the, uh, the sun or to uh, seek protection and get, get something to cool them off. And so uh, as we were walking, uh, we told them, hey, just walk down to the side of the road and we'll come back and pick you up because they probably were not going to make the last mile or so, and good thing they didn't go because it was just as strenuous as the earlier path, and so uh, thankfully we were able to get down to the end of the path, and my brother-in-law drove and picked up my wife and his wife, and uh, that's the story of how my brother-in-law almost killed my wife and my sister-in-law, so... But the point of being was they, there was nowhere for refuge, nowhere to seek protection until they got into a car with uh, air conditioning. So that when you think of, when I think of refuge, that's what I think of, finding protection from the elements. And so this morning as we look at the text, we're going to see uh, Isaiah is going to do a couple things in talking to the people of Israel. He's going to, uh, number one, he's going to challenge those who are on a path that's walking away from the Lord, as I said in my prayer. He wants to wake them up. He wants to call them to seek refuge in the Lord. And as you will see in a few moments as we go through the text, he's going to use some very vivid language, very descriptive language, and and that's in an effort to wake them up so that they might hear what the Lord is saying to them and they might seek refuge. This might be their last warning as they're heading to a path of destruction. And on the other end of that, Isaiah is going to encourage those in the household of Israel who have already sought refuge in the Lord. And he's going to encourage them to continue to trust God in the midst of the coming captivity. And as you know, as we've been going through Isaiah, they are on their way into captivity for their disobedience as a nation. And so God is saying, hey, you know what? Even though uh, you're going into uh, captivity, I want you to continue to seek refuge in me so that I can be with you and give you peace in the midst of the storm. And and as a result of these things or these two points, I hope that this morning you were no matter where you are in your life that you will find 
Either one, be encouraged to continue to hold on to the Lord, or secondly, to turn to the Lord, or to turn back to the Lord, depending where you are in your life. So with that said, let's go ahead and look at the text this morning. We're going to look at um, uh, just the first few verses, and as we go along, as we get later on in the chapter, we'll make some application. So again, the Lord is um, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he's going to speak to the wicked leaders. He's going to start by speaking to the wicked leaders of the nation. And as the leaders go, so does the nation. So they're implicated, the nation, uh, as following these leaders down the wrong path, at least some of them. And so the first thing that Isaiah does is, is he wants, he's going to tell us that the wicked leadership does not recognize that the righteous people in their society are dying. That they have no care for the righteous. And so much so that as they die, they don't care that they're dying. They actually might even be happy that the righteous people in their society are dying. Because it's the righteous people that are trying to call them back to the Lord. And keeping them from doing all that they want to do. So let's look at the text. It begins by saying this. The righteous man perishes. And no man takes it to heart. And devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, each one who walk in his upright ways. So as I said, that God is telling uh, the nation through the prophet Isaiah that, he, the, that I'm taking the righteous away at this moment before they go into captivity. Some of them at least, not all of them. And it really is a warning to the wicked leaders of, hey, there's something going on here. Why is righteousness being taken away from the land? You guys need to pay attention. And, and Isaiah tells us here, they're not. They have no care for it. They don't take heart to it. Uh, they don't understand why this is happening. And it is really supposed to be a sign to the nation that God is about to do something. That God's going to do something in their land. And this is the sign to them. So, so that's the negative side. Of that. On the positive side, in contrast, what's, what's happening is really by the Lord's hand. God is doing this as we see. God's taking the righteous away, not only for a sign to the wicked people there, but also to bring comfort to the righteous. Again, look at the text. It says, um, A devout man are taken away, now no one understands, for the righteous man is taken away from evil. This is really a gracious thing that God is doing for the righteous. Instead of allowing some of them to go into captivity and suffer along with the rest of the nation, God is taking them out of this world. So sometimes dying can be a merciful thing. You know, they don't have to go through the pain and suffering or the judgment that is coming on in the world. And so God is saying, you know, I'm going to take them out. And not only that, I'm going to take them away. I'm going to give them peace. They're going to enter into the peace. They're going to be in the presence of the Lord. How much greater it is to be with the Lord than to be suffering in this world. And so again, when, when the righteousness is departing from your society, this should alarm us. And I think sometimes even in our, in our society, we see righteousness being taken away more and more. Not necessarily righteous people, but righteousness, the things that are right in for society. And, and this has been going on through world history. It's not just uh, particular to our area, but um, it just seems to me, at least in my lifetime, to be heightening. And so maybe that should alarm us that something is going on. God is doing something in our current world. So this is the, uh, 
the way Isaiah begins, and then he moves into now in verses 3 through 4, which we'll read, in talking about and describing the character of the wicked people. And again, he's going to use some very descriptive language to get their attention and use it as a way of describing how far they've fallen from where they're called to be as children of God. So let's read. So here's what he says. He says, But come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. So right away, here, these are children of God that he's talking. His very nation that he has chosen, he's now calling them sons of sorcerers, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Very vivid language again. And and not only is it uh, used to get their attention, but it's used to describe where they are in their life. Here, they're supposed to be people of God, people of the covenant who are following after the Lord. But their leaders have led them so far away in their idolatrous worship, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a moment, that they pretty much have abandoned following the Lord's directions and they have turned to sorcery. Now, if you've been with us for a while as we've gone through Isaiah, there are many chapters that talk about that and talk about how Israel has forsaken the Lord, stopped worshiping the Lord their God, and gone on to worship gods of other nations who take part in sorcery. And not only that, he calls them again son or offsprings of adulterers and prostitutes. And I think this is just highlighting their unfaithfulness to God. Like an adulterer is unfaithful to their spouse. And God is comparing his people to adulterers. And not only that, to prostitutes. Those who give themselves away for money. Israel is just giving themselves away to the nations around them for whatever works. Whatever is practical, whatever is pragmatic. Again, as we've gone through Isaiah, we see this over and over again. The nation of Israel is worshiping the gods around them. Not only are they worshiping Yahweh, their God, but they're also worshiping other gods as well. It's like whatever works, we're just trying to cover our bases. And so the nation of Israel has fallen far from where they have been calling, or they have been called. Not only that, in, in verse God continues through the prophet, Against whom do you jest? And against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit? He tells these wicked leaders in their character they're described as mockers. They are mocking the righteous, sticking their tongue out at them. This is why they don't recognize that the righteous are dying, and they may even be happy that the righteous people are dying. They don't mourn for them, they're glad. They're called son of rebel- the rebellious, or children of the rebellion. Again, they've rebelled against God's ways, God's ways and gone after other gods. And not only that, they are, they are called offspring of deceit. They are lying to themselves about who they are. And so this is the character of the wicked leaders, and again, by implication, some of the nation themselves. And so in verses 5 through 10, which we'll read a little bit through right now, goes into a little more detail. What exactly are the wicked leaders leading their people to do? Look at what it says. So again, verse 5. Who inflame yourselves among the oaks under every luxuriant tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines under the clefts of the crags? Among the smooth stones of the ravine is your portion, You, excuse me, they are your lot. 
Even to them you have poured out a drink offering. You have made a grain offering. Shall I relent concerning these things? Upon a high and lofty mountain you made your bed. You also went up there to offer sacrifices. Let's just stop right there and, and we'll, we'll talk about what exactly Isaiah is describing. Uh, so again, Isaiah is explaining their idolatry. How far the leadership has gone, has gone? Well, they've gone so far that they're worshiping false gods under trees. And, and that could be a reference to a couple things. The ashram or the Ashroth pole, which was made out of wood, which they would worship from a tree. Or they were actually worshiping under a tree. And a lot of cultic practices at this time included sexual relations with priests and priestesses. And that could have been done under the tree. As, as we read through, you'll see some of the uh, explicit language that makes reference to sexuality. And so the nation of Israel, who's supposed to be this holy nation, worshiping only the Lord their God, have gone off to worship idols under trees, it says. And not only that, probably the most abominable thing that they could be doing is, is verse 5 says, they're slaughtering their children in the ravines and up under the clefts of the crags. They have gone so far as now they are sacrificing their very own children to foreign gods. Something that they've been told over and over again in the Old Testament to never do. And they've done this in the valleys and the mountains. They've worshipped false gods in their homes as well as verses uh, 6 through 8 says, look at verse 8. Behind the door and the doorstep you have set up your sign. Indeed, far removed from me you have uncovered yourself and have gone up and made your bed wide. And you have made an agreement for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on their manhood. So again, these are references. They're worshiping false idols. And they think they're out of the presence of God, so they go up to the mountains, or they go into their homes, and they close the doors, and they think that nobody can see. But God sees all that they're doing. Their idolatry has permeated the land and is done not only in secret, but is also done in the wide open areas. And so this is how far Israel has sank. And not only that, in verses 9 through 10, not only have they worshipped false idols, but they've also tried to make alliances with the nations around them to protect themselves. So they're supposed to seek God for their refuge. But as we've seen in, in past studies through Isaiah, the nation of Israel has sought refuge in nations like Egypt, Assyria, the Philistines, and even Ethiopia and other smaller nations. Uh, people around them, they've sought refuge in them instead of seeking refuge from God. Look at what it says in verse 9. It says, You have journeyed to the king with oil and increased your perfumes. You have sent your envoys to great distances and made them go down to Sheol. So again, this is a reference to how they've sent envoys to foreign nations to sign treaties and say, hey, let's fight with one another. Let's protect one another. They've sought refuge in these foreign nations. And verse 10 goes on, it says, You were tired out by the length of your road, so they traveled long distance, and you did not say it is hopeless. You found renewed strength, therefore you did not faint. Meaning they, really, they went, even though it was a long way, they're like, you know what, we need to go though. We need to seek after these foreign alliances because they are going to protect us 
from these other nations that are around. Again, they sought refuge, not in God, the God of Israel, but in foreign nations. So here, the nation of Israel, with their leaders, have worshipped false gods and sought foreign alliances. And these are in direct contradiction to the covenant promises that they've been called to keep, that the Lord commanded them very early on in Scripture. You can turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23. And I would give you just one example of this commandment. In Exodus 23, look at verses 30 through 33. And this is a, a way back in Israel's history. Before, right when they were taken out of Egypt, out of bondage and slavery, and God is going to move them into the promised land and give them a new land, He's given them these things to avoid. He says this, in speaking of how He's going to prepare the land for them. He says, I will drive them out before you little by little. So He's going to drive out the heathen nations from the promised land for them. Until you become faithful and take possession of the land, and I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them. So this is that part. They're making a covenant with the people that they're going into, supposed to eradicate or move out of the land. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they shall make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So God's not saying, hey, I don't want you to live with these people just because they're of a different nationality type. No, he doesn't want them to go with and, and live with them because they worship a different God. He doesn't want them to be yoked to these nations, because if they go into them, they yoke themselves or join or make covenants with them, he says, you guys are going to worship the gods that they do. So don't do that. And here we are in Isaiah, the nation is in full-blown uh, rebellion against God and doing exactly what he commanded them not to do back in Exodus. Don't do this. And they've done that. They've made covenants with foreign nations and they're worshiping their gods and this has surely become a snare for them. So much so that now God is going to move them out of the land that he gave them and send them into captivity. And so this is, again, how far Israel has refused to seek refuge in the Lord and just fallen from his grace. And verse 11 and through 13, now we see the prophet speaking for God calling into account the nation. Say, now you're going to account for these things. Look at what he says. He says, Of whom were you worried and fearful? This is speaking to leaders. When you lied and did not remember me, nor give me a thought. Was, it not si was I not silent even for a long time? So you did not fear me? So what is God saying here? He's basically saying, what caused you guys to be unfaithful to me? Who did you fear that you didn't want to worship me? Remember, they feared the foreign invasions that were coming, particularly from Assyria. And this is highlighted in Isaiah, as we've talked about earlier. They feared the Assyrians. And instead of seeking refuge from God, they would seek refuge in foreign nations or false worship. Thinking these gods will save us since our God is not saving us. Right, that's why and they lied to themselves. It says, you lied. You did not remember me, nor did you give me thought. So 
this is what Israel is doing. So Israel was still worshiping God. They were still going through the religious motion of offering sacrifices to God, praying to God, and singing to God uh, on Sabbath. But then every other day they were worshiping these other gods in the high places, in the mountains, and under trees, and in the home. So they were lying to themselves, lying to themselves about their covenant with God. Not just were they worshiping God, but they were worshiping foreign gods. And obviously God says, you shall worship me and you shall have no other God. But Israel was not doing this. And God was saying, why did you do this? Who were you worried about? Or who did you fear? And he even says at the end of verse 11, was I not silent even for a long time? So you do not fear me? He's saying, so, so maybe you're doing this. Obviously God knows, and this is, for Israel to look upon themselves when God asks a question. Maybe because I was so silent and I didn't rebuke you and I didn't chastise you that you, you took my patience, so to speak, as, hey, it's okay, I'm okay with what you're doing. Or you took my patience as maybe I don't really exist. They, mis they, they mistook the Lord's mercy as approval for what they were doing. They mistook the Lord's patience, the Lord's compassion and kindness and forgiveness as, you know what, God doesn't mind if we do this. Or you know what, maybe there is no such thing as God since he isn't revealing himself. He's not saving us from the Assyrians. He's not uh, judging me for my sins. Could you imagine if God judged us every time we sinned and he wasn't merciful or gracious? Not many of us, I would venture to say, none of us would be around today. Think of all your past sins that you've done, every time you've sinned against God. If God gave us what was due to us, none of us would be alive. And yet some people take God's mercy and compassion as, you know, he's okay with what I'm doing. Because if God didn't want me to do this, he would judge me. And this is what he's saying to the nation of Israel. Don't mistake my mercy, my patience, my compassion my kindness as approval of what you're doing. Right? No matter what, those things are supposed to draw us to the Lord. And that's why Paul says uh, in Ephesians, or excuse me, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he addresses this in a question. He goes, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Again, this is Romans 2, 4. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. You see, God's kindness and mercy towards us, the reason He's not punishing us, should lead us to repentance. It shouldn't be like, oh, well, great, God's not judging us, so we can continue on and doing evil. As a matter of fact, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 says this, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Again, God's slow because he's waiting. He loves us. He doesn't just discipline us right away. The first time we mess up, or the second time, or the third time, and in some of our cases, even the tenth time over the same thing, he doesn't discipline us when maybe he has every right to do it. But he's, he's patient and he's kind, hoping that we would come to repentance. 
Again, so many times people for, uh, look at, hey, God's not disciplining us, therefore he's approving of it. But maybe God's approvement of certain things is an actual judgment on this world. You know what? You want that? Then you can have it, and you're going to suffer the consequences of it. Kind of uh, similar to what happened to Israel when they wanted a king, when they did not want the, the, uh, the prophets or the judges to rule over them anymore. They said, you know, we want a king like the rest of the nations. And so God said, okay, fine, you want to be like everybody else, then I will give you a king, and you will get King Saul, and he will be uh, not the greatest king, and you'll suffer the consequences for that. And that's exactly what they did. And unfortunately, and eventually, God's patience will end. And that's what he says in verse 13 of our text for the nation of Israel and by application for everybody in this world eventually. That God does have a limit. God does have a timetable. And look at what it says in verse uh, 12 and 13. God says, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. So God's saying, hey, these things that you're doing, I'm going to expose them and show them to you. And guess what? They're not going to profit you. All these things that you're doing, they're not going to save you from the coming judgment. And he goes on. He says, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry all of them up, and a breath will take them away. God is saying, you know what? The, to the nation of Israel at the time, my judgment's coming in the form of Babylon. And you know what? You're going to cry out, finally realizing that judgment is actually coming. But I'm not going to hear because it's, it's too late. There needs to be some consequences for your sin. As a matter of fact, why don't you go cry out to the idols who you've been worshiping and see if they will save you. And they won't. On the other hand, there's also, again, well, what about the righteous people who are also going off into captivity? Because that's going to happen. And we're going to address those in a minute. They too will cry out to God. How will God deliver and how will God save them in the midst of this? And we'll see that in a few moments. Because that's where our attention turns to now. He's been talking about the wicked up until this point. Now he's going to compare that to the righteous people. And as we go through this, I'm going to bring out the points of application for this morning's sermon. And there might be like five or six points. So uh, get your pencil or pens ready for taking notes on this. So the latter half of verse 13, after he talks about the wicked, he says, But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. So here's the, the contrast. So he's just talked about the wicked. Now he says, but he who takes refuge in me. Again, refuge, a place of protection, a place of safety, a place where you're finding, again, protection from the elements of your world, whatever that may be. So he's saying, those righteous people that are going to go off into Babylon along with you, I'm going to protect them. I'm going to be with them. I'm going to give them the ability to hang on and get through and as we'll see, they'll even have peace in the midst of captivity. So again, the righteous are those who take refuge in the Lord. And that is true for us as well. When we seek refuge in the Lord, the Lord will be with us 
and the Lord will get us through whatever it is we're going through. It doesn't mean he's going to completely take you out of the situation and deliver you. No, because as we know in, in, in world history, especially in what we're talking about here, righteous men and women went into captivity as well, but they were hung on to the Lord. They sought refuge in the Lord, and God was with them throughout the entire process. So the righteous, again, are those who take refuge in the Lord. Well, what are some of the things that they will possess, according to verse 13? It says they will possess, or they will inherit the land. Now, speaking in particular to Israel at the time, God's telling me, you know what, you're going to go into captivity, but there's going to be a time when I come and get you and bring you back out of captivity, and you will dwell in the land. They will have the security of being home and the provision of having their own land once again. Now, this is a point of application for us. How does this apply to me and you today as New Testament believers? So we who take refuge in the Lord now, we too will experience the Lord's security and the Lord's provision because we seek refuge in Him. No matter what we're going through, God we have the security of our salvation and the provision that we have all things that we need in this life. God promises that we will inherit the land. Not only that, he promises to the nation of Israel that they will possess the Lord's holy mountain. What is he talking about there? Well, the nation of Israel is being taken out of their land and the holy mountain refers to their temple. Their temple is going to be destroyed. Babylon invaded the temple, took out all the treasures of God's temple, and took them back and took them away. And the temple represents the Lord's presence. So they are without the Lord's presence, and they are in a foreign land. And God's telling them, if you seek refuge in me, I'm going to bring you back to this land, and I'm going to bring my presence back. I will be with you once again. And for a point of application, for those of us who take refuge in the Lord now, we too will always have the Lord with us. God promises to always be with us. We will have His presence with us no matter where we are, no matter what we are going through. We have that assurance and we should take courage that as we seek God to be our refuge, we have Him with us. In verse 14, he continues on and says, Look at verse 14. He says, And it will be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstacle um, out of the way for my people. So this is a picture of God calling the nation of Israel back home and clearing the path so they make it back. They make it back to where God has called them to be. They're assured of that. God has removed every obstacle from them. He's provided a way for them to return back to the land. They've suffered and now, or they've been punished and now they're coming back home. And for us today, for those who take refuge in the Lord now, this means a couple things for us, um, and this isn't part of the notes, but God's provided a way for us to come back. If you think about it, how has God allowed us to come to Him? By sending His Son. His Son suffered for us, died for us, paid the price for us, and therefore remove the obstacle of sin so that we might have a covenant relationship with God. But not only that, for those of us who take refuge in the Lord, we will now have the ability to live for God. God paves the way for us. He leads the way for us. He's going to show us how to live for Him. He comes and makes us His own, and then He shows us how to live for Him and provides that way. He gives us that ability.
Verse 15, as we move on in Isaiah, says, For I will not, um, excuse me, he says, For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a holy and high place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So what is the Lord saying here in verse 15? The Lord's saying that I'm going to dwell with them. Here's the picture of God being high and lofty. And he's like outside of this world. He says, you know what? I'm going to come down and live with my people. The lowly and contrite, those who are humble, those who have accepted me and that made me their refuge. And he does this with the nation of Israel. He's going to come back and dwell in the temple. His presence will be in the temple. But, and for those of us who've accepted the Lord, how has he done this for us? Well, think of this. Jesus literally came. God literally came down to us, right? We say, Emmanuel, God with us. He visited the lowly and the contrite, the humble. And for us, now we have the Spirit of the Lord dwelling in us. He did not just come and leave, but He left us His Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is now dwelling in those who have humbled themselves and shown that they need the Lord as their refuge. And not only that, verse 15 continues to say that He's going to revive the heart. So here we have the, the people in Babylon who are being brought back home, who've had their lives decimated and ruined and God is going to give them a new life, reestablish their land, reestablish their worship. In a sense, He's revived their heart, given them purpose and hope. He's gathered them from captivity and made them a new home. How much, tr how true is this for you and me? For those who have made the Lord their made the Lord their refuge, He has given us a new life. Right For those of us who have maybe didn't live for the Lord at one time, which is most of us if we're believers, God says He's coming, He's given us a new heart. We've been born again. We've been given a new life. Like a, a restart, a reset when you come to the Lord. That is great hope and great encouragement for us. Moving on to verses 16 and 17. And speaking to Israel, God says this, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit world, excuse me, for the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and I struck him. I hid my face and I was angry. And he went on turning away in the way of his heart. So what's it talking about here? That God's anger will not last forever on His nation. As we've mentioned, it's about 70 years that they suffer for their sins against God, but He brings them back. He doesn't leave them in captivity forever. There's a, there's a time that God's wrath is appeased, and He brings them back to the land and to Himself. He's forgiven them. They've, quote-unquote, paid for their sins. And as you could well imagine, there's an application here for us. Right, that God is not angry with His people forever. For those of us who seek refuge in the Lord, we too will have our sins forgiven. And again, it's not by anything that we've done. God has appeased His anger, in a sense, by pouring out His wrath on His Son. 
And, and God the Son has taken our place and suffered in our place. And, and I want to show you that even in Isaiah, he mentions this just a few chapters back. If you turn to chapter 53, and you look at verses 4 through 6, this was prophesied here in Isaiah. Look at verse 4. Surely our grief he himself bore, and our sins he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. God's anger was appeased when he poured it out on his son. And his son took that sin and gave us his righteousness. This is what we call it in, the, in maybe in Christianity, uh, the, the great exchange. God takes our sin upon himself and he gives us his righteousness. He becomes sin and we become righteous because of what Christ has done. That's the blessing for those of us who have sought refuge in the God, that our sins are forgiven. Two more before we close up here. Verse 18. Verse 18 says, For I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. So not only are you forgiven, not only is the nation of Israel brought back but they are healed and they are comforted by being back home. How comforting it is to get home after maybe a long trip. Like, oh, it's good to be home again. It's refreshing. It's comforting. It can be healing in a sense. And here God is saying for those of us who have sought refuge in the Lord, that He's going to bring comfort and healing to us. And He does this by way, not only of forgiving our sins, but He comforts us. He takes the, the, the sting of sin away and he heals us. And guess what? This is not completed here. Because one day, at the Lord's second coming, the ultimate comfort and healing will come where there will be no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, for the former things have passed and all things will be new. We'll no longer be in pain. We'll no longer need vaccines or medicine or anything to heal us, for God is going to make us perfect once and for all and for all eternity. And this is the great healing and the great comfort to those who, sought, who seek the Lord as their refuge. And then the last point being here in verse um, 19. The, it's like the outcome. So God has done all this, and then what he does lastly is this. He says, creating the praise of the lips... Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. And it's that first line that I want to focus on. God puts praise on the lips of his people. Again, think of the nation of Israel returning home after being away for so long, and some returning for the first time because they're probably born during the captivity and hearing the stories of old about their homeland. They get to go home and they praise the Lord and sing about it. And for those of us who seek the Lord as a refuge, He has put a song on our lips. 
Right? He's put a new song in our heart. We're praising God for what he's done for us. I mean, this is what worship is. When you, when you think of the lyrics that you sing, you are praising God for what he's done for you, what he's doing for you, and what he's going to do. Just how awesome God is. God has put that song. He's changed it from lament to worship. Our song has changed from lament to worship. And, and we'll get to do that in a few moments as we close. God finally says in verse 20, after all this, this is the promise to those who seek refuge in the Lord. He goes back to the wicked and shows the contrast that this is for the righteous and this is what happens to the wicked. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says this, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up and refuse, excuse me, toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You see, the wicked who continue to refuse to seek comfort in the Lord, they will be running around in this tumultuous world, always trying to find refuge in something. We all do. And God says, you know what? Ultimately, they will never find peace. As much as they might make it look like they're at peace, they will never find peace. And the scariest thing is that ultimately, after they die, they will truly never find peace once again. It, they will be uh, grasping at straws and never experience it. They will not be at peace. Instead, because they refuse to find refuge in the Lord, they will be cast from His presence for all eternity, and they will never, ever be at peace. And again, this is just a warning. It doesn't mean it has to be this way for the nation. These are warnings before they go into captivity. And these are warnings to you and me today, and especially those of you who have not sought refuge in the Lord, that you would seek refuge in the Lord. Because if you don't, these are the things that await for you. And why wouldn't you, when God has gone out of His way to send His Son to this world to die in your place, to take upon the, the punishment that you so deserve, and giving you His righteousness? What is to happen with that in your life? I pray this morning for those of you that are far away that you would hear the Lord encouraging you and pleading with you to come back or to come to Him for a first time. And for those of you who have already sought refuge in the Lord, I pray that you will cling to these promises to those who seek refuge in Him, that God is with you, that God is going to be with you throughout this tumultuous time and these trials in your life, whatever you go through, and He's going to bring you through them. Let's pray. Lord God, once again, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, as we sung earlier, for, for who you are. And you are the true way maker. You've made a way for us to come to you. And I pray, Lord God, that each and every one of us would see that this morning. Again, for those of us who have sought refuge in you, that you would help us to cling to you and hold on to you until that day that we are ultimately delivered from this world. And for those this morning who have never sought you, Lord, I pray that this morning that they would see your patience and your mercy towards them is to lead them to repentance. And they would do that this morning by crying out to you, asking for your forgiveness, and committing themselves to following you and being people of your covenant. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, 
you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.